As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. You can uh, probably tell by the accent that I'm not originally from here. I used to say I'm not American, but then I got an American citizenship, and now I have to say like I'm not originally from here. Um, so I want, I want to start this morning uh, just by saying I love the leadership of this church. Um, I've had the privilege of going once a month to uh, Mount Angel Abbey with Tim and a bunch of pastors from around the town. Uh, and it's a, a place where we go, we're vulnerable with one another, we wrestle with the challenges of life and ministry, and getting an up-close and personal view of Tim as he shepherds this church has changed my heart and my leadership. Uh, Becky Josberger's here somewhere. Um, just one of my favorite experiences at Multnomah was getting to know Becky, and, uh, and one of my favorite post-Multnomah experiences has been watching her as she continues to grow as a teacher and transform Hebrew for the world. Uh, so no one can make uh, the, the vowel pointers and the dageshes in Hebrew sound so spectacularly God-glorifying than Becky Josberger. Um, so many people here that I love, but... Um, the other part that I want to start with is I just want to put a picture of my family up here because when I come and speak somewhere else, you don't know that the best part of me is somewhere else right now. Um, you know, when, when you go get photos taken and people post online the beautiful photos of their family, this is here deliberately because they're never beautiful. <laughs> There's a lot of crafting goes in to get the one where everyone's looking and everyone's smiling. Uh, my wife, Monica, that I met in Multnomah, Ella is 10, Ewan is almost seven, Sky, her personality is clear. Uh, she just turned four, and I have to tell people that come into our house, uh, you do realize she's four years old and you don't have to do what she tells you. Uh, she has a way of, of impacting the world. So they're not here. Uh, I wish they could be, but I just wanted you to see the people that I love and that shape who I am and what I do. If I go back in time, we're, we're going quite a, a while back. I was sitting in a Starbucks in Glasgow. I was skipping a math class. I was doing a math degree, so I skipped all my math classes. Um, but I'm in Starbucks, skipping a math class. I'm sitting, uh, drinking coffee. I'm reading my Bible. I'm journaling. And there's a tap on my shoulder. I'm going to turn around. There's this guy standing there in an American accent. He's like, hey, did you ever work out where you knew me from? Because the week before, I'd been sitting in Starbucks. I'd been skipping the same class, reading my Bible again. Don't skip your classes. Uh, <laughs> 
Hey, go to class. Um, so I'm skipping class. I'm sitting there, and, and as I'm sitting, just trying to figure out what I'm doing, I overhear a group of Americans discussing the book of Ephesians behind me. And so trying to be really subtle, which I find out later wasn't subtle at all, uh, I slide down on my chair, and I eavesdrop for about 45 minutes on this conversation about the book of Ephesians. At that point in my journey, I was a very nominal pseudo-Christian. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd grown up in the church. I'd walked away from Jesus. I'd done a whole lot of things that I shouldn't. And I was in this point in my life where I was trying to figure out what life looked like moving forward. So as I'd listened to these, these people, there was one person that I thought I recognized. So I turn around and I look at this guy and I'm like, I know you from somewhere. And we went through every ministry, every place we'd been and had in common. And the end of the conversation was yeah, I've never been in any of those places. I have no idea who you are. And I was like, oh, I hope I never see him again. So as I'm sitting in the Starbucks and there's a tap on my shoulder and I turn around, I'm like, oh, great. This is the guy. And, and he's like, do you, do you know where he knew me from? Did, did you figure it out? I was like, yes, you must swim at the university gym. And he's like, yeah, no. And I was like, okay. And he just looked at me with this crazy intensity in his eyes. And he said, you know, I've been praying about you all week. Uh, I moved here from the U.S. to plant a church. I've been praying that God would lead me to people that are here locally that can be part of what we're doing. How do you feel about letting me disciple you? I'm like, uh, okay. He's like, uh, here's what I want you to do. I-, I want you to go away, read Genesis, come back next week, pick out the three things you love the most, and let's talk about it. And he's like, but I need you to know this process is going to cost you. And I was like, ah, he's an American Christian. He's one of those televangelists. He's in it for the money. And then my second thought was like, well, if all he does is ask me, like, could you like, just buy me a coffee each week when we get together? I was like, oh, that's worth it. And he just looked me in the eye, and he's like, it's going to cost you because you're going to read the Word of God, and you're going to see things in there that don't line up with how you live your life. And when you see something that doesn't live, match up with how you live your life, you're going to have to begin the process of change, and it's going to cost you. Are you in? And with fear and trembling, we began that journey. We're in this uh, part of the book of Luke. We're about to look at a passage that is one of the many places in Luke where we're confronted with the cost of discipleship. And one of the things that I want to do this morning is offer you, as the Bible always does, both an invitation and a challenge, or as my dear friend Jill Weber always says, a, a kiss and a kick. It's like, I like that. The Bible wants to give us a little kiss and then a kick. So we're going to look at a passage, and, and most of what I'm going to tell you today is stuff that you should already know. So I'm not telling you anything new, but I hope in this passage today, as we revisit something familiar, uh, that something is going to stir in you and call you to deeper intimacy with Jesus. So I want to look at uh, the invitation of this passage, is the invitation that we know so well that Jesus calls us to, and it's the call to follow me. We know these words all the way through scripture. He looks at the disciples and he says, follow me. And this motif of being asked to walk in the way of Jesus. Uh, In the book of Luke, I I don't know if you realize, when you look at the gospels, each gospel presents a, a sort of different perspective on what it looks like to follow Jesus. So when you look at Matthew, Matthew describes Jesus as the great teacher, and the whole book of Matthew is organized around these five discourses that are the teachings of Jesus, and the the portrayal of discipleship in Matthew is we're students under this great teacher, and a lot of the time the disciples don't get the teaching. 
Uh, and so it's an invitation to study under this teacher. When you go into Mark, Mark portrays Jesus as the self-sacrificial servant and invites us as disciples to enter into the journey of self-sacrificial service. If you jump to John, John portrays discipleship as this journey as beloved who bear fruit in the world. But look all the way through his gospel when he's looking at discipleship. He's calling us to, to invest in the costly way of Jesus. The way of Jesus costs us. And so I want you to just reflect for a moment. Recently, in your pursuit of Jesus, what has following him cost you? Because if there isn't a cost right now to following Jesus, the question is, are you really following Jesus the way he's inviting you to? A lot of the invitations that Jesus gives in Scripture to follow, again, we don't always realize, like we talk about discipleship in the church, we talk about what it means to follow Jesus, we don't always realize that at the time that Jesus is living, there's a multitude of dis forms of discipleship that exist in the world. So you could go and be a, a disciple in trade school and learn what it means to be a carpenter or a stonemason or a builder. Uh, you can follow a, a philosopher and be a disciple in a school of philosophy. Uh, the prophets had schools of discipleship. The Bible talks repeatedly about these schools of disciples that followed particular prophets. And then you've got the whole Jewish system where uh, you've got these rabbinical figures, these teachers that people are following. So a lot of what Jesus is doing that we don't always realize when, when we're reading the scriptures and Jesus is giving us these invitations to follow, a lot of what he is doing is clarifying how his form of discipleship and how following him differs from every other form of discipleship or followership that exists at the time. Because every time he asks the question, follow me, or extends the invitation, follow me, the people that he's talking to have assumptions in their mind about what it means to follow him. Anyone in the room have assumptions in your mind about what it means to follow him, right? We all walk with assumptions. So all of this passage, all of the gospels, all the descriptions of Jesus inviting us to follow are clarifying what does it really mean to follow this rabbi? Uh, there's a teacher, Ray Vanderlaan, um, who does a lot of stuff out in Israel. I love this statement that he makes. He, he says, I want to follow so closely to Jesus. It's old rabbinical tradition. I want to follow my rabbi so closely that I'm covered in his dust. Uh, so I'm walking as I walk in his way. I'm so close behind him that with every step he takes as he kicks up dust, you end up covered with the dust of the rabbi. So the invitation this morning is going to be to reflect on how closely are you following, how much dust is being kicked up over you, and how much are you willing to sacrifice to walk in that way. Luke 9.23, so you've just covered this already. I want to root us in this moment. Um, that frames where we're going. In Luke 9.23, Jesus says to, to the people around him, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. So this chapter is all an invitation into this deeper discipleship. Chapter 9 begins with some invitations to the 12. You're about to jump into chapter 10, where that group expands to 72 that are sent out. If you go back and look through chapter 9, every story in here is a moment of clarification around what it means to follow Jesus. 
So this, this story that you just looked at last week, right? They're, they're walking through Samaria. They're not receiving a welcome. They're like, we're following Jesus. We know the Old Testament. We know how this works. Pour fire from heaven and burn them up. And Jesus is like, you still don't get it. That's not what it looks like to follow me. There's a different way. And so then he goes on in this passage to give a description uh, through these stories of three encounters that he has with people. And in each of these encounters, uh, you're going to see the same thing. You're going to see the, the invitation to followership. And then you're going to see these three, you could call them excuses. You could call them hindrances. You could call them barriers. But these three obstacles or hindrances that stand in the way of followership. And I just want to remind us that this was written 2,000 years ago. And, and Jesus is pick, or look in this moment is picking out three stories that, that communicate the universal human experience, the issues that these people were dealing with 2,000 years ago that were the obstacles to following Jesus are exactly the same obstacles that we're facing and wrestling with today. So let's, let's look at these one at a time. I want to start with hindrance number one. The first excuse uh, is, is my comfort, right? We know this so well. How many of you like your comfort, right? You come into church and you sit in the exact same seat every week because you don't want to have to make a decision about where to sit and someone sits in your seat like the guy speaking and you're like, uh, But the passage says, as they're walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. I just want to comment briefly. All the stories we've seen up till now, people are coming to, Jesus is going to people and saying, follow me. This is someone else taking the initiative. Jesus, I've just seen the miracle that you've done. I've seen the, the powerful teaching. I'm seeing the impact. I want it. I am in. Anyone had one of those high moments like, this is fantastic. I'm in. I'm going to follow you wherever, I, wherever you go. And Jesus replies, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. So often in our spiritual journey, and particularly in Western Christianity, we like to try and suck people into the Jesus story through the nice part of it. Come and Jesus is going to make you happy. He's going to fix your problems. He's going to heal your sicknesses. He's going to restore your family. We don't tend to lead out with, hey, come follow Jesus. Life is going to get hard. You're going to have to sacrifice things. It's going to be difficult. He's going to challenge. It's going to be painful. People are going to persecute you. Um, we often are like this man in our invitation into Christianity. Uh, Jesus, I'm going to come. I'm going to go wherever you send me. Uh, this was my story. Uh, in that Starbucks, I was asked this question, are you willing to, to adjust your life to match Scripture? The language that we were using at that time that I still used today, are you willing to do whatever God wants, whenever he wants, whatever it costs? And I'm like, absolutely, I am in until things got hard. And I'm like, yeah, I'm happy to pay the cost, but this is painful. This is uncertain. I'm not getting things the way that I want them to be. So how many of you in the room, you don't need to raise your hands, or how many of you watching online have had that moment? He says, I am in. I will go wherever you send me. And now you're nowhere but where you were at the beginning. And we've got a bunch of excuses and hindrances that stand in the way of doing what Jesus is inviting us to. This reminds me, like this whole moment reminds me of what comes a little bit later in Luke 22. You remember Peter and this interaction with Jesus. This is 22 toward the end of the book. Simon, Simon, Satan's asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replies, Lord, I'm willing to go with you wherever, even to prison and to death. 
<laughs> and Jesus is like, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to have disowned me. And we know how the story goes, right? He's at a campfire, and a high school girl is like, were you with Jesus? And he's like, ah, no, <laughs> scared of a high school girl. I love this. The, the founder of the, like the, the, the pillar of our church running away from a teenage girl out of fear. So how many of you have had the experience, have been swept up into the excitement of the invitation to follow Jesus, who have made the declaration like, I'm in. Whatever you want, I'm going to do. How many of you have responded and worship or to church invitations, but the going gets hard? The, the challenge is a little too much, and we settle. Um, Halloween 2011, I had a two-week period where I found a testicular lump. I go to the doctor in the morning. This is Halloween 2011. I go to the doctor's office in the morning. I put it off for so long because I didn't want to deal with what it might be. I go to the doctor's office. I'm, I'm sitting there in the morning. They do the examination. The doctor looks at me, and there, there's two ways we can deal with this. One is I can refer you on for further studies. It'll be a few weeks. Someone will get in touch with you. You can go for an appointment. My recommendation, just go to ER right now. I'm going to give you a letter. You're going to go in. You'll probably be there for a chunk of the day, but they're going to examine you. Uh, and, and they'll do tests, and you'll know probably in the next 24 hours what the deal is. We have free healthcare at home, but it's slow healthcare, so there's, there's a trade-off. Um, so this day, I, I'm at the doctor's office at 8 in the morning, 8.30, I'm at ER, and they take me in, they do some initial testing, they put me on a stretcher. It turns out it's the busiest, it was the busiest day of the year. So they put me on a stretcher, there are no beds, there's no space in the hospital, and so I am in a queue of stretcher beds lined all the way around all of the, be all of the corridors of the hospital. Uh, I got into a room uh, at 6.30 p.m. that night after sitting on this thing, and they're like, we might have to do surgery, so don't eat anything or drink anything. You need to fast all day. So I'm lying on this stretcher, and, and I am going, okay, this sounds serious. Like, people are throwing out the C word. Cancer, that C word, right? <laughs> There's other C words that I can't talk about. Um, sorry, my mind is going... <laughs> Um, but I'm lying in this bed, and I, and I am like, oh my goodness, like, what if this is cancer? Like, and they're, they're running through all these scenarios with me, like, if you, you might have to go for surgery, there might be chemotherapy, we need to confirm what it is, you could be infertile, you could die, like, all this stuff. And I'm lying on this stretcher, and, and, and I got my journal out, and I'm just like, in this moment, going, God, I don't know what to do with this. Like, I feel like there's all these things you want me to do with my life. What if this is cancer? And in, in this moment of journaling, like, I had a long time for this. And I was sitting journaling. I felt like God saying, you've been saying for years now, like, whatever I want, whenever I want it, whatever it costs. So what if it costs you children? What if this leaves you infertile? Are you willing for that to be my will? He's like, what if I've decreed that this is your time and you're going to die from this? Like, are you willing? So I had to sit there and, I, and in my journal, like, honestly, I look back at my journal entries and, and this was not Scott writing. This was the work of God in my heart pouring out onto a page. My journal is, God, I will do whatever you want, whenever you want, whatever it costs, even if that means that I can't have kids, even if that means I'm going to die and my life is over and my family has to continue without me, hey, God, I am willing. 
And I would love to say from that moment on, I have followed Jesus wholeheartedly and never had my comfort get in the way of it, never disobeyed him. There are always moments where the cost has come up against it. Um, But in that moment, it was a wrestle with comfort, like my future, the things that God was giving me, the life that I was expecting, was it going to go the way that I wanted it to go? So again, how many of you have made the decision with zeal and then settled back into comfort and mediocrity? As part of this passage, the first part is the invitation to follow. The second part is this statement, Jesus' answer, like, I'm going to follow you wherever. How does he respond? Foxes have holes, birds of their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And uh, he's like, I, I don't have a house. I can't promise you stability. Uh, you can't have the comforts that you wanted. We're going to walk in a different way. And in, in, in preparing for this, I was reading some commentaries, and there's an old British guy called G. Campbell Morgan who... Um, actually taught at Biola for a while in the early 1900s. Um, But he made a statement that I found so convicting in this moment. He's saying, you know, I wonder if that disciple felt pity for Jesus. Like, oh, and and sometimes we do. Oh, the poor, poor guy that didn't have a home and had to move around itinerantly. This is what he said in comment to this. He goes, Jesus does not need your pity. Pity yourself, rather, if you have a home that holds you back when Christ wants you out upon the high places of the world. (laughs) I was like, uh, back in surgery for cancer, right? Um, We chase the comfort of the world. Jesus asks us to follow him, and we're like, no, like, I need the house, I need the iPhone, I need the job, I need the status, I need the spouse, I need things the way they are. Don't ask me to, do, don't ask me to reveal my deep secrets. I don't want to be exposed. Don't ask me to go to another part of the world. Don't ask me to talk to someone of a different political persuasion. It's too difficult. Um, how many times have you grabbed hold of something Uh, that is the very thing that is holding you back when God says, I want you to go. You're like, I've built this house, I've built this family, I've got this job, and I'm gripping this so hard that when Jesus asks me to go, I can't do it. Um, Heartbreaking. How we long for the material of the world and then fail to realize how subtly it steals our heart away from our ability to follow Jesus. Second hindrance in here, I would call it my dreams and obligations. Jesus says to this other man, follow me. But the man replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. If you were to go grab some commentaries, listen to some speakers on this, there's two primary ways that they're interpreting this passage. Um, lots of debate always about, about how to take this. Option number one, that this guy in hearing the invitation to follow is more concerned about the inheritance that he can have in the future than obedience to Jesus. So I know that my family's going to die. I get to inherit all that they have. So just let me go home, stay with my family, let my dad die, let me get the inheritance. And once I've got all the money, then I can come and follow you. And oh, I've got all this money that I can use to serve you in the kingdom. So option number one, people are debating, is this guy like, hey, I want to go and I'm in it for the money. Um, The other side of it, which is probably the one that's more true, because the first one is more of a Western interpretation, uh, in cultures that are more uh, 
close social communities, there's a lot of obligation put on family to carry on. And uh, the Bible calls it honor your father and mother. So you're going to care for your family. You're going to take ownership. You have an obligation as a firstborn to carry the family name forward and to lead the family. Um, and so we don't know if this, guy, if this person in the story is like, hey, I want my, I wanna, I'm not going to follow you right now. I'm waiting on the money. Or if he's feeling the social pressure from his family, like they've put obligations on me. I can't come and leave everything and follow you because I've got to take care of my mom and I've got siblings and I've got nieces and nephews and I've got to step in and take care of these people uh, before I can come and follow you. Um, some people think maybe the dad's just died and he's like, I gotta go bury my dad right now, but that stuff typically happened really quickly, and so he could go deal with it really quickly and get back. So so we don't know. There's three ways that this could be, but at the end of the day, what's happening in there? One of them is a dream. A dream of a future that involved money and position in a family like Jesus, I can't come follow you yet because I have goals. And I've not met them yet, so I can't up and leave and go to Africa because I've got to earn enough money. I've got to take care of my family. My mom's sick, and I don't want to put her in a care home. We come up with all sorts of excuses. The other side of it, I can't do this because my family have expectations. They want me to go to this college. I can't go to Bible school. My, uh, my family want me to go and become a doctor. Um, obligations that our family put on us. I encountered this back in Glasgow when we planted the church. Uh, the, the decision was that we were going to do it at dinner time. We we're going to have a meal. We were then going to like do the church service after. So it was a 6 p.m. start on a Sunday evening. And that was when we had family dinner. And I remember having like with fear and trembling going into my mom like, hey, I think I'm going to go plant this church with these crazy people and I can't be at family dinner. And she's like, what do you mean? This is like family dinner. Do you not care about your grandma? She's old and near the end of her life and you need to be there with her. And it was like, am I going to buy into the obligation that my family put on me or I'm going to walk into the things that Jesus has called me to do? The third excuse that we walk in or hindrance is tied to that. And I think Jesus has taken us deeper. It's not just dreams and obligations, but our family and friends become a big problem in this journey. Still, another said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first, just let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What's going on here is this innocent desire just for closure. I just want to go let them know that I love them and then I'm all in. Not very likely. And each of these, Jesus is looking at common excuses. And what's he doing? He's digging into the heart issue underneath. What's the true desire, if we're honest with ourselves? When we say, you know, Jesus, I can't do it yet because there's some deep desire that we're lying to ourselves about and lying to others about when we use the excuses that we use. So he's digging under the surface here. He's pushing against this person's motive. Um, there's, there's a passage that, uh, I don't know how much you've talked about this, and Luke has these allusions to Elijah scattered all the way through the book. Has this come up yet? Um, and at part of it, uh, Luke is trying to demonstrate to people that Jesus is the one that was promised, that he's this Elijah figure that's going to come and rescue the world and fulfill the law and the prophets. So all the way through the book, especially this beginning part, chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, are all of these direct references to Elijah and allusions to Elijah. And this actually, Luke has been really clever and in this story is pointing directly to the Elijah-Elijah story. 
Um, so if you know your Bible and you know your Old Testament, then you probably were able to pick up on it. First Kings 19. Let's look at this moment. Elijah goes from where he was and finds Elisha, the son of Shaphat. He was plowing, interesting, with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah goes up to him, throws his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah and says, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elijah left and went back. He took the yoke of oxen and slaughtered them, burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. So in this invitation, it's not just a person that is, that, that, that is asking to, or being asked to follow uh, and, and then doubting in this story looks masterfully woven in this, this narrative around Elijah. Like Luke is wanting us to see, you know, Jesus is greater than both the law and the prophets. So you've got moments like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is like, you've heard it said this before, but I'm going to tell you a deeper and more profound truth. And all the way through, we see that Jesus is better than the law. This is one of those moments where, where we're seeing really clearly Jesus is better than Elijah the chief prophet. Jesus is the capstone prophet because where Elijah would say, yeah, sure, like go, go say goodbye to your family because what I'm asking of you is like really tough and I feel bad about it. Jesus is like, no. Like when I call you to me, you leave everything behind. And I'm pretty sure Jesus knew that if that guy went back to see his family and his friends, his family and his friends would convince him that he was stupid to go following this man, Jesus. Jesus, I want to follow you. And I know my girlfriend's not a believer and people say that's not a good thing, but she's my girlfriend, right? Jesus, I'll follow you, but just not that. Jesus, I, I hear the invitation to give my life to you, but my family are like avid atheists. And if I was to give my life to you, like I would never live it down. So I can't do it. There's, there's an image in this passage and, and you're gonna have to, I'm gonna plead your forgiveness now. I might offend you. There's this thing that I love. It's called holy irreverence, right? There's this moment in this passage that excites me and blows my mind. And once you see it, you can never go back. So I'm about to ruin scripture for you in a holy, irreverent way. Jesus, I will follow you, but first. This, this moment in the passage, what's Jesus saying? You've asked to follow me, but you're turning back to look at something else and putting priority in this. So the image that we've got here, um, when they're plowing a field, they would fix their eye on a point in, in the horizon. And by fixing their eyes there and driving the plow, they would fur this really straight line. And the imagery here is as you're trying to fur that line, if every time you're doing it, you're turning around over your shoulder, you're like veering off course and the line is no longer straight. And the image is, are your eyes fixed on Jesus and are you plowing a furrow right toward him? But the passage says, Jesus, I will follow you, but first... This is our posture, right? I'll follow you, Jesus, but first. And I saw this one day, this moment and this image that changed it. Rather than Jesus, I'm gonna follow you and just, I'm gonna try and glance over my shoulder at things like, like Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife. <laughs> you ready for the holy irreverent moment? You cannot follow Jesus, but first, right? <laughs> right? Honestly, right? This, 
this is the image. Like, are your eyes fixed on Jesus? We like to think our eyes are fixed on Jesus and we're just like, okay, okay, I'll check my thing. The image of us trying to follow Jesus is this. He's over here and we're walking around like, Jesus, I'm trying to follow you, I'm all in, but first my house, my career, my family, my girlfriend, my health, my status, my perfection, my relationship. Jesus, yeah, I know that you tell me to read my Bible, but this TV show is more important. Jesus, I know that you tell me that I should be spending time in prayer, but my kids are young and it's too hard to find time. Jesus, I know that you, should, you say I should support the church and preach the gospel. But money's tight and I need a new sofa and we want to go to Santorini for a quick trip to enjoy the pleasures of Greece and maybe we'll learn something about Paul while we're there. (laughs) Jesus, I want to follow you, but first. And so my question in this moment of holy irreverence is, what is your orientation toward Jesus? Are your eyes fixed on him and plowing straight toward him? Are you walking about looking stupid because your butt is leading the way. I want to give you some questions to ponder as we walk into communion. And here's the two questions. What are the butt firsts that are getting in the way of your following Jesus right now? We've all got them. And they're all, the, the underlying motive and our true fallen desire is hidden behind those words, but first. So it's an invitation to you. What is the hidden motive that is in the way of doing the thing that Jesus is asking you to do today? Is it your fear of rejection that stops you sharing the gospel with a friend? Is it your fear of repercussions that stops you speaking up uh, when it's needed? And then, and then with that, what's one thing, just one, like these messages can be heavy because it's about the cost of discipleship, but what one thing can you do this week to symbolize laying it down for him? So as we take communion, uh, I want you to think about these questions as we take it, because what's communion? It's an image of the one who followed followed his father with his eyes fixed, with no but first moment in his life. I will follow you to the cross. No, get me out of this. I want to be comfortable. I want to follow you to the end. So we're going to come up, take the, the, the bread, And the wine, the bread represents his body that was broken willingly for you. The wine, his blood that was poured out freely for you. And as you take it, think about your hesitations and your fallen motives and compare that to the unlimited self-sacrificial service that he gave on your behalf.